There is a content note on this episode. It contains a very biblical account of a successful suicide attempt and an attempt to understand what might have motivated it. Recognizing that this could be triggering for some, I would encourage people to use discretion. I would also like to affirm very clearly that suicide is never the solution to anyone's problems, not even Ahitophel's. Links to suicide prevention hotlines have been included in the show notes. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahitophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. The conspiracy grew in strength, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. A messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the Israelites have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him at Jerusalem, Get up! Let us flee, or there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Hurry, or he will soon overtake us and bring disaster down upon us and attack the city with the edge of the sword. The story of the rebellion against the rule of King David by his son Absalom is told in the second book of Samuel in chapters 13 to 18. It is a fascinating and epic story that is way too detailed for the format of this podcast to deal with as a whole. But I'm kind of fascinated by the role in this story of certain smaller characters. One person in particular has captured my attention lately, and that is Ahitophel, the Gilanite. Here was a man who was apparently one of David's wisest and most trusted of advisors. It is said of him that, in those days, the counsel that Ahitophel gave was as if one consulted the oracle of God. So how is it that this wisest and most faithful of counselors ended up being a part of a failed insurrection against the rule of David. Why did he choose to back the wrong horse? Well, it turns out that we do know a few things about him that might speak to his motives. But there is a bit of a story behind it. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 5.18 Ahitophel Hell hath no fury like an angry grandpa. It had been a long journey on the back of his donkey, and Ahitophel was dozing in his saddle, mesmerized by the steady pace of the animal's hooves. 
But when the donkey's pace suddenly quickened, because it recognized where it was and could smell its home stable, Ahitophel looked up and was cheered by the sight of his own village, Gilo. It was a small village in the hills, with a few families living side by side. But he knew every inch of the place, and he felt a peace settle over him to know that he was finally back here again. This was the place where some of the most important events of his life had taken place. It was the place where he had taken his wife, and he would never forget the day when she presented him with his firstborn child, a son, whom she had named Eliam. And then, many years later, had come the golden day when Eliam had bestowed upon him the title of grandfather and placed his firstborn child, a girl, into the hands of his father. The child had been conceived shortly after Eliam had given his oath to fight in the service of an up-and-coming young chieftain named David. And so the girl was named in honor of that oath, Bathsheba, Oath Daughter they called her. And Ahitophel was so proud of his son and the strong warrior that he had become. He was also taken with his little granddaughter, who, right from birth, was uncommonly beautiful. Eliam was often gone in the years that followed the birth, as he followed David and fought in his many battles. So Bathsheba was raised by her mother and her grandmother in Gilo. Ahitophel was the only male figure in her life, and also spent a great deal of time with her. He soon learned that she wasn't just beautiful. She was bright, inquisitive, and a natural leader of others. This only made her grandfather love her more, but it also made him sad to think that, as a woman, she would certainly not be allowed to exercise such extraordinary gifts. Ahitophel was famous throughout Judah for his wisdom and good judgment and so, when David was finally crowned as king, he was given the opportunity to come and serve the new ruler as a counselor. And so, in the years that followed, he was often away from Gilo. He missed the opportunity to see his beloved granddaughter grow into a beautiful young woman. But still, his heart was never very far away from her. Of course, when his son told him that he had found a husband 
for Bathsheba, Ahitophel was thrilled to return to Gilo and celebrate her wedding. He was rather surprised, of course, to meet the groom and to learn that his son had chosen to give Bathsheba to a foreigner. But once he got the chance to meet Uriah the Hittite, he thought he could understand why Eliam had chosen him. Uriah was tall and strong, and you could see that he was a natural warrior. And yet, at the same time, there was a gentleness to him, and a respect for all people, at least for those who were not his enemies. Ahitophel saw him as a man who could be good for Bathsheba, who could let her flourish, at least as much as a woman was allowed to do so in the world. So he was content to give his blessing to the couple. When he kissed his granddaughter, as she left with her companions to go to her husband's new house in Jerusalem, he did it with a happy heart. It was the last positive memory that he held for something that had happened in the village of Gilo. And now he was returning here one last time. Yes, yes, it seemed right and good to him that this was where he would do it. Here in Gilo, Ahitophel was going to kill himself. Ahitophel was no fool. Not being a fool was practically his job description. So it really didn't take long for him to figure out what the king had done. When he heard the news that Uriah had been killed during the siege at Rabbah, and then, soon after, the king had taken Uriah's wife into his harem, he didn't need to be a mathematician to put two and two together. He spoke to his granddaughter in the king's harem, and she tearfully told him the whole story. She told him how violated she had felt when she realized that David was spying on her from his rooftop, and how powerless she felt when he had sent for her. She too wept for Uriah, who had only ever been kind to her, but within the confines of the harem, she had to keep her grief hidden. Ahitophel wasn't the only one to figure out what had happened. Actually, the king's prophet, Nathan, figured it out first, and he was furious. He went straight to the king and confronted him head on. 
actually got the king to confess. Ahitophel, for his part, was even more furious than Nathan. The matter was personal for him, after all. Nathan came to him and told him all that he had said to the king, how he had said to David that someone would do the same thing to him and take his women from him and do it in full sight of the people. Ahithophel liked the sound of that, but he knew that something like that might take time. He wanted to be sure, not only that the king was confronted, but that he paid the price for his crimes, and he was quite willing to put in the time and effort to make sure that that happened. Ahitophel could be patient, very patient. He would wait. He was sure that sooner or later, the king himself would offer him an opportunity to take his vengeance in a way that would make the king hurt. Years passed, a couple of them, but finally Ahitophel saw his opportunity. It started when one of the king's sons, his eldest, Amnon, raped his sister by another mother, Tamar. When that story came out, and it came out very publicly, when Tamar grieved her lost virginity, Ahitophel was absolutely enraged to see David's abusive behavior being replicated in his sons. And what was worse was how David absolutely refused to punish Amnon for what he had done. This, more than anything, convinced Ahitophel that David was irredeemable and that he was the one who deserved to be punished. It was then that Ahitophel decided on the agent of his vengeance. He chose Absalom, Tamar's full brother, and began to whisper in his ear that he needed to avenge his sister's violation. He found in Absalom a very eager listener. But, once again, Ahitophel was willing to be patient, and he counseled it to Absalom as well. For two years, both of them waited for their opportunity to strike. It was Ahitophel that came up with the plan for Absalom to invite all of his brothers to his estate and strike Amnon down in front of the rest of them. He knew that that would hurt the king, even if it would be costly for Absalom in the short run. 
But even there, Ahitophel had a plan. He manipulated Joab, the commander of the king's forces, to persuade the king to permit Absalom to return from exile. And it worked. The next phase of the plan required even more patience. For four long years, Ahitophel secretly counseled Absalom as he undertook a veritable campaign to bolster his own popularity among the people and the officials of the kingdom. He put in the time, standing at the city gate, kissing babies and offering his own opinions on court cases, opinions that were always calculated to be popular. The campaign went very well. Absalom was likable and charismatic, and, perhaps most importantly, he had really good hair, which has always been one of the keys to being a good politician. Meanwhile, Ahitophel was carefully following popular opinion in the city, and when he saw that the time was right, when the name of Absalom was on everyone's lips, he knew that the time had come to strike. The next move was very carefully orchestrated. Ahitophel withdrew from the city and returned to his hometown, while Absalom went to the king to beg permission to go down to Hebron with his companions. It all had to start at Hebron because that was where kings had to be anointed. So Absalom had to invent some excuse about fulfilling a vow to get permission to go. And then, suddenly, all the pieces were in place. Absalom gathered a large number of men together in Hebron for a sacrifice. Then he publicly sent for Ahitophel. That was the signal that indicated that many others should also declare their support for Absalom. Of course, it also made many others who hadn't yet committed think deeply about what side they really wanted to be on. Many people did not want to be on the wrong side of one of Ahitophel's wise decisions. When David heard that the country had gone after Absalom, and that even his best counselor had deserted him, he was devastated. He fled with all his remaining loyal followers and his household. They left Jerusalem and headed towards the Jordan in the east. He left only ten of his concubines behind him to take care of his household. Absalom and all of his supporters moved quickly to take the city following the withdrawal. And when Ahitophel saw how David had left his household, he knew that his chance for perfect revenge had finally come. 
he turned to Absalom and told the boy exactly what he needed to do next to consolidate his rule. A tent was set up on the roof of the king's palace, where everyone in the city could see it. And into that tent were placed all of the concubines that David had left behind when he fled his house. Ahitophel told Absalom that the very first thing that he must do was go into each one of those concubines, one at a time, in the sight of all the people of the city. Now, <laughs> there is no denying that doing such a thing made a significant political statement in that context. The people all believed that there was a link between the king's sexual prowess and his ability to rule over the people. By doing this, Absalom was essentially stealing all of David's power and legitimacy in one bold move. At least, that is what Ahitophel told Absalom. But it was only part of the truth. Ahitophel knew that this whole story had started on the roof of David's palace. It was there that David had stood when he humiliated Bathsheba by spying on her in a private moment. It was there that David had set the tragic course of events in motion, his violation of Bathsheba, of Uriah, and indeed of the entire nation. Ahitophel was determined that David should feel the pain of that humiliation and that it should happen in that very spot. Absalom had his doubts. I won't say that he didn't. Something felt very wrong to him about the whole idea of going into his father's women. But he trusted the Gilanite completely. And so he did what he was told to do. It was after that that things began to change. The truth of the matter was that Ahitophel had allowed his desire for revenge to take precedent over truly wise counsel. Once he had taken the city, the first priority of Absalom was not to sleep with the concubines, but rather to give immediate chase to David. Any wise counselor should have known that David was very good at forming alliances and, given the time, would find a way to return to Jerusalem with an army at his back. If he was going to be definitively defeated, Absalom would have to strike at him and do it quickly. But precious time was lost as Ahitophel orchestrated his obscene theater on the roof of the palace. 
by the time the counselor had woken up to his error. The damage was already done. He went to Absalom and told him of the urgent need to pursue David immediately. But Absalom, traumatized by what he had been required to do, hesitated. He thought that maybe he needed to look for a second opinion. It was then, to his amazement, that Ahitophel experienced something he had not experienced for a very long time. He watched as the people around the room began to second-guess his wise advice. Most vocal was Hushai, the archite, who piled his scorn on the idea of mounting an immediate pursuit of David. Now, Ahitophel certainly had his doubts about Hushai, who had always been so close to David. He had been suspecting that the archite had been sent into their midst as a spy. What he saw now only confirmed that conviction, but it seemed as if there was nothing he could do. He had used up all of the respect that he had stored up for himself over many years by advocating for the rooftop stunt. It would take time to earn back the respect of Absalom and the court, but time was the one thing that they all did not have. Well, the court of Absalom dithered over what they should do. Spies in Jerusalem got word out to David, and he slipped through their fingers. Ahitophel entered into his ancestral home in Gilo. He spoke kindly to the servants, giving them orders for what they should do until such time as their new master, Eliam, returned to take possession of the house. He called in a local village elder and told him what he wished regarding his assets and possessions. He then took a fine linen rope and knotted it with a simple loop. He went out to the ancient oak tree that had stood on his family's property for many generations. He had climbed this tree as a child, so had Eliam and Bathsheba in their turns. He now climbed to a low-hanging branch, feeling deeply the age in his bones, but grateful that he was able to do this one last time. He paused just before pulling the loop over his head. He really didn't think that it mattered much that he was doing this now. 
he was convinced that now that his counsel had failed and David had been given time to regroup, Absalom's rebellion was ultimately doomed. And there was no way that David could allow Ahitophel to live once he had triumphed. In a way, maybe this would only make things easier for David. But Ahitophel didn't really care anymore. He found it hard to care about anything since losing favor in the court. He couldn't regret the vengeance he had taken on David, and he hoped that when the king heard of his death, he might also feel some regret. Ahitophel's only regret was that he would not be able to be there in Jerusalem for Bathsheba. He also wouldn't be able to watch her new son grow up. She had had the child just before the whole debacle with Amnon and Tamar had begun, her second child with David, and a great comfort to her after her first child had died shortly after his birth. If Ahitophel had any hope for the future, it was in Bathsheba. Sure, in her present circumstances, her power was limited, but he felt certain that if ever she was given the chance, she would step up and do what was needed for the good of all Israel. Even if she was just a woman, she had inherited a great deal of her grandfather's wisdom. And who knew? Perhaps her son, his great-grandson, might inherit some measure of wisdom as well. Surely that was what she had hoped for when she had named him, for she had named him in hope of the peace and wholeness of the entire nation when she had called him Solomon. The Bible tells us frustratingly little about Ahitophel. He is obviously a key figure in the rebellion of Absalom, but we are told nothing about what might have motivated him to choose the side that he did. In the same way, we are told that he committed suicide, but are not told what might have really motivated him taking such a drastic step. I mean, sure, it says that he was upset because his counsel had been rejected, but it seemed to me that there had to be more to it than just that. But, in my reading, I came across the one biographical detail 
that seemed to explain so much. In another passage later in Second Samuel, Ahitophel is identified as the father of Eliam, who is, of course, the father of Bathsheba. Suddenly, Ahitophel's actions seem to make a lot more sense. And so this story was born. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. If you like this episode, why not share it and the podcast with a friend? The theme music for the podcast is Ada. The mood music for this episode is Killers. The music is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible. And I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.